Well, I'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for being a good and gracious God, and your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for our time together to study your word. We pray that you would be with us, help us to learn your word well, that we may give a cogent response to those who are perishing. Well, we pray also, Lord, that we, you would give us wisdom that comes from you so that we may live lives pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody. Hey, you know, one thing I wanted to mention is I, last time I was teaching Sunday school, I said that sometimes we're going to be between Proverbs. In other words, I hate to sometimes you have like three slides left, and I hate to start a whole new session so I'm going to bridge it with apologetics. And so that's actually what we left off on last time. And my prayer was, would be that by the time we get done through all of the chapters in the book of Proverbs, you would also have a packet of apologetic material specifically for Catholicism that you would have in a Bible, for example, to help maybe you have relatives or friends or family that are Catholics you can help them with. So today we'll start talking about the perpetual virginity of Mary. That came up as an issue with a congregant in a study that he was doing. And so I wanted to address the issue here. Now, when, remember when we're talking about apologetics, the term apologia is the Greek term. It does not mean that we're apologizing or saying that we're sorry, but rather that we're coming up with a rational defense for what we believe. So I want to talk about Mary being a perpetual virgin. That's one of the claims of the Roman Catholic Church. Listen to what they say. This is from their catechism, and so when I make these claims, it'll all be from their own writings. The catechism, this is uh, section 499, it says, quote, The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as a Parthenos, the ever-virgin. And again, that's their own writing. So notice the claim from the Roman Catholic Church is that Mary is a perpetual virgin. One of the reasons they do this is to try to claim that Mary was sinless. And there's this elevation of Mary to be a co-redemptress and a co-what they call mediatrix, a co-mediator, on par with Jesus Christ. And so this is an attack on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And I think it's important that we would have a rational and cogent defense to say, no, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Now, I want to talk about their claims. Again, they're claiming that Mary is a co-redemptress or co-mediator, that you can, in prayer, go to certainly Jesus, but they often would rather go to Mary, don't they? And they go to other sources rather than Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5. And I want to show you that there is one mediator between God and man. That's the man Christ Jesus. That's what the passage says. So we'll just look at a few of these verses here. Again, 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5. If you turn there, notice it says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men the man Christ Jesus. So notice there's one man that we go to as a mediator. Now, what's a mediator? A mediator is a go-between between two parties. So remember, Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. According to Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he's high up on a mountain just like Moses was. 
And remember, even Moses and Elijah are there. Remember during the transfiguration? Why was it important during the transfiguration that Moses and Elijah were there? Because Moses represented the law in Elijah the prophets. So the law and the prophets was testifying to what? Well, that Jesus was the new mediator. And that's why the final testimony was from God himself. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Okay, so yes, we know that Jesus is the mediator once and for all. We don't have another. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 John 2.1. We'll look at another one. 1 John 2.1. And these are passages that we can bring up with our Roman Catholic friends or neighbors to show that indeed Jesus is the only advocate or mediator found in the Scriptures. 1 Timothy 2.1. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So notice if we do sin, we have what? We have a mediator. We have an advocate. In fact, he makes intercession for us on our behalf. And that's one of the beautiful things about Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, ascended on high. He lives to make intercession for us. So we're not just saved by his death, but we're saved, as Paul writes in Romans, by his resurrection because he always lives to make intercession for us. Again, Jesus alone is our advocate. He's the one in the heavenly throne room whose very shed blood is a constant reminder that, in fact, we're in him, that we have his atonement, that we have his righteousness. Now, think about it. When they're calling Mary a co-mediator, they're really calling her a co-savior. Aren't they? If, you're, if you can mediate between humanity and God... In some sense, you're like a savior. Well, think about in Isaiah 43, 11. Remember there, God said, I, even I am Yahweh, and there's no savior besides me. And that's why we see Jesus' name means what? Yahweh saves. He is the unique savior. Let me give you another quote. This is from the Catholic Church. I'll kind of skip to the end of this quote. It says, quote, This very special devotion to Mary differs and they, they claim, essentially from the adoration which is given to the incarnate word and equally to the Father and the Holy Spirit. But it greatly fosters this adoration. The liturgical feast dedicated to the mother of God and Marian prayer, such as the rosary, is the epitome of the whole gospel. It expresses this devotion to the Virgin Mary. So they really are, in the Roman Catholic Church, devoted to worshiping Mary. Why? Because they've elevated her to be on par with Jesus. Yeah, Brian. The, the term mediator in itself, yeah. it would be like in a worldly sense, the mediator would take two issues and try to come to uh, uh, solving the problem. Yeah, and resolution. our problem is sin. Amen. And, and there's only one person that can do that. Otherwise, you'd be looking to Mary to solve your sin problem. Amen. And, you know, we, we talk about Moses being the mediator of the Old Covenant. But remember, Moses, and he was, we can't denigrate Moses, but he was always a stand-in until the one who comes would come to whom Moses prophesied. Remember, he says, one will come after me. This is Deuteronomy 18.15. And, and God will raise up from your own countrymen a prophet like me. You will have to listen to him. And if you don't, it'll be required of you. Uh, Bob and I were talking one day about... Why isn't it, for example, why isn't it that you and I should be looking for another prophet to come like Jesus? 
Well, because Jesus is the one who alone fulfilled the terms of Deuteronomy 18.15. So once Jesus comes on the scene and the Father says from heaven, with Moses and Elijah and the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him, there's no other. And so that's why when Joseph Smith comes on the scene of history, we don't have to listen to him. We've had our once and for all prophet, right? That's right. So let's talk about how do we answer this idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin. I want to give you just some helpful hints. First of all, we're going to assert to our friends or our neighbors who are Roman Catholics, we're just simply going to assert, number one, that Mary did have children who would be natural-born brothers and sisters to Jesus after Jesus' birth. Number two, the Catholics will claim that the reference to brothers and sisters of Jesus are either... Uh, cousins, their relatives like cousins, and therefore the Bible is speaking generically just of other relatives. I'll show you that that is not the case. Or sometimes they will claim, as they do in their catechism, that the reference to brothers and sisters are not Jesus' natural-born brothers and sisters to Mary and Joseph, but are instead spiritual brothers and sisters, namely believers in him. That's their claim. But I'm going to be showing you in the context of scriptures that isn't possible. That there are references to brothers and sisters that must be natural-born brothers and sisters, in other words, with physical, familial ties to Jesus through being naturally born to Mary and to Joseph. That's what we're going to be proving. Now, let me begin building the case. And again, what I envision is you would hold uh, maybe a Bible set apart with the different packets in it for Catholicism that you can have ready to help refute some of these things. So here's Matthew 1, 24 through 25. It says this, it says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice here on the text, let me pull up my pointer, notice in the red, where it says until. The term there, haos, means just that, that there is a timing indicator that, in fact, the idea would be implied Mary and Joseph remained physically separated. They had no physical relations until after Jesus was born. And the implication then is that Joseph and Mary would have the normal physical relations of a man and his wife after that point. That's what's implied. So what I'm going to show you is there's many other passages that also show us that, yes, we are reading this correctly, that Jesus really did have other familial brothers and sisters. And again, what I'll show you is when the Roman Catholic Church claims, no, these other brothers and sisters are just believers, you're going to see that that's simply not the case. Let's look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 47. Listen to what it says. It says, while he, that's Jesus was still speaking to the crowds. Behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside, seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, seeking to speak to you. Now, notice here the reference to the mother and to the brothers of Jesus. What the Roman Catholic Church does in this passage in their catechism is they will claim that those are spiritual brothers and sisters or, excuse me, spiritual brother and spiritual mother. In other words, these are just people who believe in Jesus. So just like you and I walk around here today, we call each other brother or sister, the Roman Catholic Church, to claim 
that Mary was a perpetual virgin, they have to claim, well, no, it's not actually the real mother and the brothers are just spiritual brothers. The problem with that is in context. Yes, Paul. Oops, we'll get you a microphone. There's Carly. Thanks, Carly. Of course. Thank you very much. A little bit later in uh, Matthew 13, verse 55, yeah, it says, Is this, this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon yes. and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Yes, and amen. I was going to just come to that in a little bit. Yes. So hold on to that, okay? That's, you're exactly right. I'm going to point that out because that is a very devastating verse that refutes their position. So thank you. And that's at the hometown synagogue where Jesus was preaching in Nazareth, and the relatives, the family, the friends, you know, the people who knew him, they're saying, wait, we know this guy. Isn't that his family over there? So absolutely it proves that there were familial connections, not spiritual connections. There were brothers and sisters in the natural familial sense, not in the spiritual sense. But we see that in the immediate context here as well. Turn your Bibles a little bit further, just one verse after this, Look at Matthew 12, 48. Start there. And again, what are we looking for here? The Roman Catholic claim is that the reference to brothers and mother, again, are spiritual, that they're just believers in Jesus. But I'm going to show you Jesus is going to make a metaphor, and he's going to talk about those who trust in him are really his brothers, sisters, and mother. Now, why is that important? Well, it shows that yes, his brothers and mother outside who were looking for him were his physical brothers and mother. That's the point. Notice Matthew twelve forty eight. It says, But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now stop there. Is Jesus denying that he has a physical mother and physical brothers? No. But what he's doing is he's distancing himself to the importance of mere familial relationships. Why? Because he's the Lord of all. He's the creator of his mother and his brothers. He's the Lord of all and he's their savior. So he's doing this distancing, showing that whoever comes to him in faith, that's ultimately what's important. The familial physical ties are not nearly as important as the ties that one has when one believes. So listen, he says, "'Who is my mother and who are my brothers?' And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Does everyone see that in verse 49? He's making a metaphor. Inside the house, there are those who believe in him, and they're really his what? His brothers and his mother. Well, what that means is the ones on the outside, the mother and brothers, had to be his physical mother and brothers. Otherwise, the distinction between the two makes no sense. Are you with me? So what that means is when... The person says, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. The mother and brothers have to be the real familial relationships in contrast to those inside who are trusting in him, who are his spiritual mothers, brothers, and sisters, as it were. Are you with me? So it won't do then for the Roman Catholic Church to simply claim that these are spiritual mothers or brothers on the outside. After all, the spiritual ones are on the inside, as Jesus pointed out. Let's finish with verse 50. Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. What's the ultimate will of the Heavenly Father? That you would trust in the Son. 
that you had to come to faith in Jesus Christ and therefore you become a brother, a sister, mother, etc. in the kingdom of God. That's the idea. Now, let's turn to the passage that Paul was telling us about here. A very astute reading, by the way, free coffee, Paul. <laughs> um, Matthew 13, 55 through 56. Turn your Bibles just one chapter ahead. And as you're turning there, remember Jesus is teaching in his home t- hometown synagogue. And I often think about this passage. I don't know if you've ever done this, Bob. But whenever you try to teach or preach to your own family members, and I'm, by the way, I'm not putting myself on par with Jesus. I'm just saying it's always ironic. You have a harder time selling your own relatives on truth from the scriptures than often uh, you do with, with strangers. And so I often think about we're in solidarity with Christ on that point. But notice here in Matthew 13, verse 55, this is at the synagogue. And you have this preaching, which is just masterful by Jesus, where he links himself to the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, showing he's the long-awaited Messiah. And the people that grew up with him and the family, think about it. Can you imagine you're in a Little League game, and you knew the kid from Little League. I, one of the kids that comes to my mind was Joey. And I can't, can you imagine growing up day after day after day with Joey, and you see your other kids playing with Joey, and all of a sudden Joey's claiming to be the Messiah. It's, it's that sort of thing that's going on in his hometown synagogue. And that's where we pick it up in Matthew 13, 55. This person who's incredulous says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Verse 56, And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So notice, obviously, what this man is saying is, look, we know his family. We know the familial relationships. Where does this guy come off trying to claim that he is the Messiah? But what that refutes is the Catholic notion that here the brothers and sisters and mother are just spiritual. No, it's obviously physical and familial. Therefore what? Therefore Mary and Joseph had natural-born children after Jesus Therefore, she was not a perpetual virgin. Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church's magisterium is incorrect. Therefore, you don't have papal infallibility. Therefore, you shouldn't listen to the Roman Catholic Church. That's how serious it is. They are saying that they are infallible when the magisterium teaches something, and they are clearly unbiblical and unscriptural at this point. Let me show you again uh, that the Roman Catholic Church claims that Jesus' brothers are oftentimes his spiritual brothers, but sometimes different Catholic apologists, like this Keating is his last name, I forget his first name, but he will say sometimes that the reference to Jesus' brothers are actual disciples of Jesus, right? Well, I'm going to show you that that's not true. John 7, 3 through 5, it says, Therefore his brothers, so these are the physical brothers of Jesus, They said to him, they're saying this to Jesus, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may also may see your good works, which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret where he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Then notice in verse 5, it says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus' own physical brothers didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, obviously the term brothers there, Adelphos, can't mean disciples 
because by definition, disciples believe. Now, what's so beautiful about this and what the Roman Catholic Church is subterfuging is this actually proves the point of Christianity. Think about it this way. Jesus' own physical brothers at one point during his earthly ministry did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But later on, for example, James went to his death. That's the, one of the brothers of Jesus. He ended up dying. He, I think he was clubbed to death is how they finished him off. I think they threw him down, they stoned him, but he still lived. And so they end up finishing him off with a club. So here's the point. Jesus' brothers at one point in his ministry, they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. But later on, his own physical brothers who grew up with him were willing to die asserting that he was the Messiah. What made the difference? I think it was the resurrection. So here, by claiming that these brothers are merely just disciples because you want to hold on to the perpetual virginity of Mary to elevate her, you're subterfuging one of the great apologetic claims of Christianity that, yes, one time the physical brothers of Jesus didn't believe, but then they later did believe, so much so that they're willing to die. Now, dear ones, my, I have a beautiful brother and sister. I love them so. If I claim to be the Messiah, they would know that's not true, and they would know it today, and they knew it yesterday, and it would never change, Right? They would die telling you that I am not the Messiah. But I'm just saying that that's the power of a brother or sister. They see the truth, don't they, um, sometimes? Yes, Brian, you can't hide it from them. From your uh, logic class, you can't have uh, A be true and then yes. non-A Thank you for true. pointing that out, Brian. Excellent point. So what Brian is saying is, look at the screen. The brothers here cannot be the physical brothers of Jesus and not the physical brothers of Jesus at the same time in the same relationship. Either they are the physical brothers or they are not the physical brothers. That's the law of excluded middle. The first was the law of non-contradiction. So of course they are his physical brothers because if they were disciples they would be believing. <laughs> so the Roman Catholics, uh, they don't have a, I don't think anything to stand on here. They said the brothers we're not, we're, notice the not, we're not believing in him. Okay, now turn your Bibles to Galatians 1.19. Let me show you another cross-reference for this. This is the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.19. And he's talking about how he had come to know Christ by being personally instructed by him. So remember, the first disciples that were with Jesus from the beginning, they were taught by Christ for three years. Well, the Apostle Paul was taught by Christ for three years in Arabia. So he's brought up to the same standard that the original apostles were. But notice here in Galatians 1.19, Paul said this. He said, But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So does everyone see that? So here, the apostle Paul is distinguishing between the other apostles, as it were, and another one, which is the Lord's brother. Does everyone see that? So that shows us then that the Lord's brother must be a familial brother, a physical brother. It can't be merely just a disciple. All right, now let's keep moving on. I want to talk about important terms. Again, Roman Catholics claim that the references to Jesus' physical brothers could be used to refer to, for example, cousins or people with other familial relationships. So either the Roman Catholic Church is going to tell you that the reference to brothers and sisters of Jesus are disciples, 
or they're going to try to claim that they're terms that are used for cousin. So after all, the biblical writer says brother of Jesus, but they really just meant cousin. And the way they get that is because in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, sometimes there could be overlap by using the term Adelphos. But by the time you get to the New Testament, in the Greek period, there's a lot of different terms that are used for different familial relationships by the New Testament writers so that they distinguish between a brother, a sister, a cousin, or another relative. That's what I want you to see. Okay, so for example, the term brother, Adelphos, that's the term for brother. How many in here have ever heard of Philadelphia? That's supposed to be the city of brotherly love. Now it's the city of crooked elections and all things uh, kind of shady, right? But that's what it is. Um, Now, if you're going to talk about a sister, so Adelphos, the os ending, is masculine. There's masculine, neuter, and feminine nouns in Greek. The os ending is masculine. So if you're going to use the sister, it'd be Adelphae. The a ending is feminine. Okay, so Adelphos or Adelphae, there's two different terms. Uh, in fact, the Adelphae would have been used in that Matthew 13, 56 for Jesus' sisters. Okay, there's another term that's used that's cousin, anepsios. Anepsios. So in other words, when the Roman Catholic says, hey, the reference to Jesus' brother, it really was his cousin, therefore Mary's a perpetual virgin. Well, no, why didn't the New Testament writer just use the term anepsios? They had a term in New Testament Greek in that period for cousin, and I'll show you a usage of it. A relative, remember Elizabeth is called this, a sungenis. This is just a relative, and sometimes they're cousins, sometimes they're a wider relative, but they are also related. So again, when the Roman Catholic says, well, this reference to brothers and sisters of Jesus, maybe they're not disciples, but they're a wider relationship like a cousin. Well, there was other terms that the New Testament writers could have used. Let's look at an example here for cousin. Colossians 4.10. Notice it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Notice the term cousin, that's anepsios. So in other words, notice here when Paul writes Colossians 4.10, he could have used Adelphos for brother, but he does not. He could have used Adelphi for sister, but he did not. He could have used Sungenes, but he chose Anepsios. Why? Because that's the term for cousin. So when the Roman Catholic Church says to you, some Roman Catholic, they say to you, well, the reference to Jesus' brothers are just a reference to his cousins. Colossians 4.10. Bring up Anepsios to say, well, why didn't the New Testament writers use Anepsios rather than Adelphos when it referred to Jesus' brother? No, the term Adelphos is used for Jesus' brother. Adelphi is used for Jesus' sister. Mater is used for mother. Okay, so there are terms that could have used. In fact, turn your Bibles to Luke 136. I want to show you another example of this. Luke 136. Luke 136. Remember, this is Elizabeth, who is a relative of Mary. She's the one who gave birth to John the Baptist. Luke 136. Notice how Luke distinguishes her. He doesn't use a generic term, Adelphi. 
as the Roman Catholics would claim, but he uses Sungenes. Notice Luke one thirty six, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth. Does everyone see the term relative? That's Sungenes. Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Brothers and sisters, if in fact the biblical writers wanted to refer to a cousin or a relative, they had the terminology to do so. The Roman Catholic claim that the reference to brothers and sisters are just a reference to Jesus' cousins doesn't hold any water. No, there were terms for cousins. Now, let me show you a passage I think really illustrates how the New Testament writers use different terms for different familial relationships. That's what we see here in Luke 21.16. It says, but you will betray, Jesus says, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Notice the distinction here, the term parents there, gonus, the one who generates, right? If you're a progeny, you're one who comes from the gonus, right? The one who generates, the parent. Brothers, Adelphos, relatives are here, Sungenes, friends, you have the philos, the ones who have love and affection for their, their fellow, right? So there were terms, dear brothers and sisters, that the New Testament writers would have used if, in fact, when the New Testament writers were talking about Jesus' brothers and sisters, they, in fact, wanted to refer to the cousins. It simply doesn't hold any water. Turn your Bibles to Mark seven thirteen. Please turn your Bibles to Mark 7.13. What I want you to see that is in light of this, I think we have to conclude that the Roman Catholic Church and its magisterium is an error. And the reason they are an error is because the Roman Catholic Church wants to depart from the teachings of the Scriptures and supplant them with their own tradition. But I'm going to show you, as Jesus warned even in his day, of men who would teach their traditions, and therefore nullify the word of God by teaching their traditions. Notice what it says in Mark seven thirteen. Jesus, remember, this is where he had declared all foods clean, and he was getting after the Pharisees because they came up with their own scrupulous laws, ones that God had never commanded. And in Mark seven thirteen, Jesus says, thus they're invalidating the word of God, he says, by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. What were the Pharisees doing? They were nullifying what the Word of God really said through their own traditions. That's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church is doing. At this point, when you're talking to a Roman Catholic friend or relative, one passage I like to bring up is, do you remember in Matthew 4, Jesus says we don't live by bread alone. He was citing from Deuteronomy. But we live by what? every word that proceeds from the Father's mouth. What Jesus did is he used Scripture, the Word of God, as the authority by which men live. He submitted himself to that as our representative, our new Adam, and you and I must submit to that as well. And that's what I would leave your Roman Catholic friend with or relative, to say, are you going to live as Jesus did who submitted himself to Scripture alone and used Scripture as the final authority, are you going to nullify it, the Scriptures, by the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church? Because that is what is at stake when people try to elevate Mary to being co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. All right now, with that, do anybody have any questions, comments, ideas? Uh, Brian. Brian. 
Real quick, I'm, I was thinking that if we put that in today's terms, yeah. like say you have a a friend of yours, real close friend, yeah. you know who his brothers are, you know who his sisters are, cousins, yeah. father, mother, you, you know about them. And so we'll just use the writer Paul, for example. Either he didn't know what he knew or the Holy Spirit is not being honest in the translation of the writing and and that's just not happening. Exactly right. In other words, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Colossians 4.10, there was a deliberate usage of the term anepsios for cousin. Absolutely. And that shows us that the Roman Catholic who says, well, when when the writers of the New Testament refer to brothers... It simply could be rendered cousin. Well, why didn't the New Testament writer use anepsios rather than adelphos? There were other terms that could have been used. And I think that show, it's a devastating point. It shows that they're not being consistent logically. Yes. Yeah, real briefly, um, I think that the evidence is so obvious and so clear. So how can Catholics are not stupid people? I mean, right. how could they get it so wrong? And the answer is, I believe, is that they're drawing from the mystery Babylonian religions of a, a female deity. Mm. And they've got to have a female deity because of their mystery Babylonian-type false religions. And so they just threw Mary in the mix just to put that in there. Amen. Rich, well said. You know, what's interesting about the Roman Catholic Church is they will jump over... They'll jump through hoops, they'll bend over backwards to try to denigrate the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And you see that in their elevation of Mary to a co-redeemer, co-mediatrix state. What I'm going to do in subsequent messages, I'll actually show you a flow chart. And it was from a good author that I had who refutes Roman Catholicism. And what I'm going to show you is that their understanding of salvation always begins at baptism you're regenerated at baptism. But as soon as you're regenerated at baptism and saved, for example, as an infant, the moment you sin, you enter into their system of works. And so they have this whole system of works that is completely made up by the traditions of men rather than submitting to the word of God. And that's what I want to look at because I want to help people understand why do they have penance? Why do they have the meritorious works of the saints? Why do they have all these various things? And if you see it on a flow chart, sometimes it's helpful because you can actually see where they think they are in the flow chart and why they do what they do in order to one day enter into heaven rather than simply trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So well said that they always want to elevate something to attack the sufficiency of Christ. Yes, Paul. Many years ago, I had a chance to be in a question-answer session with a guy by the name of Lee Strobel, regardless of what oh, you feel about him or not. Sure. He had an interesting thought. Um, a question came from the floor, who is the toughest people group to reach? And he said, the people, the people group who feel they've already been reached. Yeah, <laughs> well said. That is well said, yes. I, uh, I think about the, there was one evangelist who said something very similar. He said, you know, false religion is like a vaccine, it keeps you from getting the real thing. And um, you're exactly right. Those who think, I like the way you put it, those who have already been reached, Roman Catholicism would fit that very bill, wouldn't it? Yeah, they think they're already in the kingdom. Yes, Peter. Hey, Eric, thanks for addressing some of these issues. Um, Yeah. From a historic standpoint, wasn't there several centuries that passed from the New Testament scripture to what we understand today as the Catholic Church? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, for, for example, they'll try to claim a succession from the Apostle Peter. They claim a lot of these things. Um, in later messages, I'll actually prove that that is not taught in Scripture. But you're right, the Roman Catholic Church in its magisterium, its papacy, its traditions are centuries later than the Scriptures themselves. Now, one of the things that Roman Catholic apologists will do is they will try to tie you to believing their tradition by saying this. They will say, okay, you evangelicals believe in the infallibility of Scripture, yet they'll say, who determined the Scripture? They'll say, well, the church. So if the church, therefore the Roman Catholic Church, is not infallible, you would therefore not have your infallible word. You see the quandary they're trying to put us in? But the way to properly think about that is that the church did not determine the canon, we merely recognize the canon. And that is all the difference in the world. Did the church determine the canon or did the church merely recognize the canon? And we're going to talk about that later in our studies in 2 Timothy 3, where all scriptures God breathed. It's God who determined what the scriptures were. It was the apostles, for example, Peter, who recognized that the apostle Paul was writing scripture. So it was the apostles who were those who were inspired. And you and I, as the church, merely recognized what, in fact, God had already done. Another point that, will, that should be made later, I guess, is remember when we're talking with the Roman Catholics, we have the same Bible except for the apocryphal books. But remember, the apocryphal books are not our New Testament. So we agree on the New Testament books. What are we differing over? The extent of the Old Testament canon. In other words, the canon means the, the standard. So the Roman Catholics are inserting books that came from that intertestamental period, that 400-year window between Malachi and Matthew. Remember, even Josephus had recognized that there was no prophet in Israel at the time, and therefore there was nothing written. And so that's why it's so shocking when John the Baptist comes on the scene of history, because he is the one who was prophesied in Malachi, who is making the way straight for the Lord, also in the book of Isaiah. So here's what I want you to think about. How do we know that the Roman Catholic Old Testament is not the correct Old Testament and that the Jews had the right Old Testament. Remember, the Roman Catholics are saying, hey, the Jews goofed it. They didn't have enough of the books. They didn't have enough of them. Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 3. I want to show you this from Romans chapter 3. A great passage to use to show that, no, the Apostle Paul recognized the same Old Testament as did the Jews. Romans chapter 3, start in verse 1. Notice Romans 3, 1, it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now stop there. Why is Paul asking that? Because, hey, if Jews who have the law violate the law, and the Gentiles without the law still are sinners, what's the advantage of being a Jew? All you're doing is you're condemning yourself by not living up to the law. Well, notice what he says. Verse 2, he says, Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. So the Apostle Paul is saying that the Jews had the very scriptures of God. The Roman Catholic Church says, no, they goofed it. They didn't have the right amount. 
They didn't have the apocryphal books, therefore they weren't given the very oracles of God. So either the Apostle Paul is correct or the Roman Catholic Church is correct, but they both can't be correct. Another great passage to turn to, by the way, it's found, I won't turn to it now, but in Matthew 23, do you remember where Jesus is, he's just ridiculing and lambasting the leadership of Israel, and he says, upon you will come upon all the blood that was shed from righteous Abel to the son of Zechariah, or excuse me, to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Do you remember when he uses that phrase? Well, the reason that's significant is Abel was found in Genesis. That's the beginning of the Hebrew canon. But do you know what the last book of the Hebrew canon is? It's Chronicles. Now, remember, they have the same books you and I do. They're just in a different order. And they don't have first and second Chronicles. They just have Chronicles. So their Chronicles is where our Malachi is. But again, they have the same books. They're just in different order. And again, their Chronicles would be our first and second Chronicles. Where you see Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, listed is in the book of Chronicles. Why is that important? Because Jesus is affirming their canon went from Genesis to Chronicles, which is the same books that we still have today, again, in just different order. So both Jesus and Paul were affirming that the Jews had the right canon. I think uh, Jesus is a little bit more opaque. That reference there, it's an implication. But Paul is very direct that they had the very oracles of God. So, Peter, I'm sorry to, I hope I've answered your question, but I got kind of off on a tangent there. But these are all things that they do to try to, again, denigrate the scriptures and to elevate their tradition. Yeah. Back to what Brian said earlier, the Catholic Church is supplanting the Holy Spirit as if the Holy Spirit made an error. Yeah. I mean, 2 Timothy 3.16 or 2 Peter 1.19 through 21. Right. You know, um, you're exactly right. I remember Bob said very astutely one time that the Holy Spirit inspired the authors, not the readers. And so if you think about it in that way, what the Roman Catholic Church is in some sense saying is that the church is the one who's inspired to determine the canon. But that's not what the Bible's teaching. The Bible's teaching that the biblical writers were inspired to write what they wrote. And it's incumbent upon men to recognize what God has done. And that's why the origination of Scripture was never determined by man, as Peter said, but it was always what? It was by uh, men moved by God spoke from God, right? Men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. So, yeah. The church recognized the canon. We didn't determine it. And that's all the difference in the world. That's what differentiates the evangelical, really, from the Roman Catholic Church. Dear ones, the biggest battle that we have with the Roman Catholic Church is the battle over Scripture alone. Faith alone in Christ alone is the next battle, but it's always subservient to the battle of, is the word the final authority? Or is it their tradition plus the word? So, yeah, Bob. Um, there's a, a number of things going on, but I, I was doing some more research for some of our uh, podcasts yes. for CIC, and I reread an article from uh, this Bill Johnson that I wrote about Bill Johnson out in Redding, California. Yes. And trying to remember, I knew he was denigrating Christ, but I was trying to figure out how. Yeah. So I reread my article. They have their own way of diminishing the uniqueness of Christ. Mm. And so. Uh, he's claiming that in his incarnation, Jesus laid aside his divinity, and whatever he did was 
as a mere man. Yeah. Okay, and we've talked about that. Others claim that Jesus, when he died on the cross, lost his divinity, he had to get it back from Satan, yeah. which would be the word of faith heresy. Yeah. So Rome could easily point to a lot of stuff going on with Christians, it's hardly any better. Right. But I'm wondering if people even make their decisions based on reason, logic, or scripture, or even their own doctrines. Right, right. And what caused me to think about that was, yet yeah, was it yesterday? They had that uh, funeral for the prince in oh, yeah. England. Yeah. Yep, in England, right. So I was, that came on, I was watching for a bit. And so you basically had the Anglican church, or the high church. Did you see that cathedral? And the massive amount of uh, material that went into that, these windows, and yeah. they were, it was all very nice, I guess. And there, if you listen carefully, you can actually hear scripture. Um, but the intent isn't what's said, yeah. or what's taught, or what's prayed, or what's believed. It's the experience. Right, right. And that's why I call that fake transcendence. Yeah, it's conjured up. And so the point of this Bill Johnson was, yeah. we have to do greater signs and wonders than Jesus. Wow. So if Jesus was God, it's not fair. Right. Okay, because then he could do signs and wonders that we can't, because he had deity. We, and so we got to be somehow on equal footing, yeah. diminishing the uniqueness of Christ. Just like the Catholics. Furthermore... He's buying into the same air as Rome in the sense that people aren't going to believe rational doctrine taught from Scripture. Wow. They need an experience. Yes. Okay? And so the experience at Rome is there, the incense, the vaulted ceilings and massive cathedrals, and all this money yeah. wasted on architecture. Right. And then everything else that goes on, the smells, the bells. Yeah. But that was what was tempting people uh, in, Jesus, uh, in the apostles' day to go back to temple Judaism before the destruction of the temple. Well said. And that's why the book of Hebrews is saying yeah. that, yeah, they have the high priests and the, the ornate materials and the right. gown and the uh, pageantry and the, the actual blood. And, well, let's go back to that. Well, what did the author of Hebrews say? Yeah. You've just damned your own soul. Right. Because their blood has to be shed over and over again. It can never take away sins. Amen. But the blood of Jesus was shed once for all. Amen. And it's not poured out on a visible mercy seat, but on the one in heaven. Amen. He's our propitiation. Yes. And if I, I, I don't want to take too much time, but... Someone said to me just the other day, people don't make decisions anymore based on reason. Yes. They make them based on emotions. Wow. Well said. You know, Bob, I love that. You know, when you're mentioning um, the, the uh, Bill Redding in his denigration. Oh, yeah, Bill Johnson in Redding. I'm sorry, yeah. Bill Johnson in Redding. This um, demotion of Jesus Christ to saying that he was something less than divine that's something that the German theologians were doing in the 19th and the 20th century in that kenosis doctrine right. on humbling themselves. But I want everyone That's to see... That's what that is, kenosis. Exactly. Right. Um, I want everyone to see this because this is a, a doctrine that you may run into sometime. German theologians... Um, I, <laughs> 
By the way, there's probably German blood in me, but there's a lot of bad things that start in Germany. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? There's a lot of bad movements that start there. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm not gender. I mean, we're all sinners. So, but turn your Bibles to Philippians. I want you to see this kenosis doctrine because it's something that keeps coming up. What you'll see is these same heresies keep cropping up over and over. And it's this idea that Jesus emptied himself of divine attributes and therefore was less than divine. And I want to show you the passage that's distorted. It's found in Philippians 2, if I recall. Kenosis. Yeah. And um, let's see here. I'm going to find it here. Yeah, here is Christ's example of humility. Okay, so let me just read. I'll start in verse 1. This is Philippians 2.1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of the same mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of other, others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Does everyone see the term humbled there? That comes from the, the verb kanao, which is the, the, the noun is kenosis. So when it says he humbled himself, there was translations that could, you could literally render that he emptied himself. So the German theologians took that and they said that's where Christ emptied himself of his divine attributes. But what I want you to realize is that doesn't follow the logic of what Paul is saying. Because what Paul is doing is he's saying you and I should humble ourselves because Christ humbled himself. Now, when you humble yourself, if you ever put someone else in front of yourself, um, for me, that's hard. I'm a sinner. <laughs> but when I do, and I've humbled myself and I open the door for someone else to let them in, small, small gesture, I guess, I didn't lose any of my human attributes. Are you with me? So just because you humbled yourself doesn't mean you lose your human attributes. Then why is it if Christ humbled himself, he lost his divine attributes? No, what Jesus did is he divested himself not of his divine attributes, but of the divine prerogative. Amen. He had the ability to come off the cross. He had the ability to destroy all of his enemies merely by speaking the word. Yet he humbled himself for our good to the point of death on the cross. That's the point that Paul's making. So to read into that, that somehow Christ divested himself of divine attributes is heresy. Yes. Amen. And that's exactly what yes. that bill And we Johnson just did some recording for CAC on that, and I'm going to continue. Amen. We're going to be talking about that. The, the reason it's heretical is that it empties the idea of divinity, yes. of meaning. Yeah, explain why, Bob. Talk about because, not contingent being. Uh, I mentioned this last week in Sunday school. Divinity implies eternal, non-contingent existence. Amen. Unpack that. Eternal. 
no beginning, no end. Amen. When we gain eternal life, we still had a beginning. That's right. We did not exist before the creation. We're created. Amen. But we can go on into eternity. Right. So when eternity is predicated of God, it means eternal, non-contingent. No one created God. God is. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Amen. So the Bible claims that Jesus is God. Now, Rome would want to affirm that, but they want to elevate Mary, and the easiest way is to diminish Christ. Right. Their theologians would probably claim Jesus didn't lose his divinity. Right. But uh, Kenneth Copeland, um, yeah. Bill Johnson in Redding, California, many other teachers like that want to do it. They had their reasons. Yeah. Rome wanted some version of a deity that was female yeah. so that they could get the pagans to be happy when they forced them into the church. Mm. Maybe they had other motives. I don't sure, know all sure. motives. Yeah. Redding tells us, uh, the guy in Redding tells us what it is. Yeah. He wants us to do greater miracles than Jesus. Wow. And so if Jesus had any advantage by being God, then that doesn't work. But here's the problem. The Bible claims that the miracles of Jesus proved his divinity. Amen. Okay? So why are they trying to take the miracles and say, well, they can't prove divinity because we're going to do more and better ones. So then can we prove our divinity? Right. And if our supposed better miracles proves our divinity, then what's the point of proving Christ? Amen. And so what these teachers do, and that, that made sense as I re-researched it. Yeah. They pick and choose. This verse, but not this one. This verse, but not this one. Right. And they tell a tale. Yeah. And so we have charismatic heretics, <laughs> pietistic heretics, Catholic heretics, yeah everywhere wanting somehow to attack the uniqueness, the sufficiency, the deity, the majesty of Christ. Yes. And this is damnable heresy. It is. And we're not the bad people because we say it is. That's right. We're just helping the saints not be harmed by false teaching. Yeah. Amen. Well said. Well said. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Well said, Bob. Very fitting. I, we only have, I, yes, Peter. So what Bob just said about uh, raising or elevating Mary's role. Yeah. Uh, in the New Catechism, it states that um, Mary is without sin, and she's full of grace. So is that how they're reaching this conclusion? Absolutely, yeah. So they're, they're elevating her to the same standard of Jesus Christ who, like, was tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, he's the sinless one. And so you're absolutely right. There's this diminishing of Christ and this elevation of Mary to being on par. You know, uh, Bob had mentioned, too, these greater works. Um, I, I grew up, when I was a brand-new Christian, by the way, I, was, I flew out at Crystal Airport. That's where I was a flight instructor and so a lot of the people that I knew were from that um, Word of Faith church, living, what's it called now? Living Word. living Word, there you go. And I knew a lot of them, and I knew their theology. And I was brand new to theology, so I was still growing. But I always thought about that greater works. And what really changed my opinion was when I came to realize the truth of the doctrine of election, 
that's really something that solidified in my mind that the greater works that Christ was referring to was bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you think that that's something naturally that man can do, then that's not a miracle at all. But every time I believe the Bible teaches someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's a miraculous supernatural work by God alone. And that's why I remember in, in John 1, 13 through 14, he says they're not born of the will of man nor of the will of the flesh, but born of God. That's how we're regenerated. So that's one of the issues why I'm such a big stickler on this doctrine of election because, hey, the greater works that we do that Christ promises when the Holy Spirit would come, he would enable people. Remember it says, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, right? So when the Spirit comes upon people and enables them to believe, that's a supernatural work. So the problem is, is you have these people who want to denigrate Christ, elevate man, so that you and I end up doing miraculous deeds, as Bob said, that end up subterfuging the uniqueness of Jesus Christ because he, remember in Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, the great promise is when the Messiah would come, the deaf would hear, the blind would see, the lame would leap like a deer, and the, the poor would have good news preached to them. So Jesus comes on the scene of history, and all those things happen demonstrating what? He's the Messiah. So now you have this joker, as Bob's talking about, in Redding, California, who wants to say that we do the same things because he's confusing the greater works. No, the greater works is bringing the gospel to people and letting the Holy Spirit supernaturally regenerate them, bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the better works or greater works that Jesus was talking about. So, um, by the way, we're almost out of time. I was going to start. We'll, we'll hold on to, um, well, actually, I've got your handouts. We'll be handing them out next time for Proverbs. So I was all set to go. But this works out really well. We'll start in Proverbs 1. We'll go through the homework together. And then um, if we finish early, I'll always have another little apologetics ditty to go through. Um, and again, hopefully, by the time we get to Proverbs 31, you'll be able to answer any objection ever given by man to Christianity. No. <laughs> yeah. That's a kind of a large boast, I guess. But anyway, um, we got a few minutes. Anybody have any other things they want to... Yeah, Dan. I was just wondering, um, I'd, I've heard arguments from, you know, Catholics in regards to that, that part in John where Jesus is on the cross and he's saying to, um, oh. yeah, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, to the disciple, behold your mother, and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And the argument was that, that the Jews would never do that. I mean, they would never want someone else taking care of their mother. Sure. So what, what would be your answer to that? Yeah, and the, the reason, Dan, you're so right, what, they, what they're trying to do is at that point say that mother, Mary becomes the mother of the church. Okay? So at that point... And what's interesting about it, there's two problems with them trying to claim at that point that Mary becomes the mother of the church. Number one, if it were consistent with Roman Catholic doctrine, she would have to be given to Peter because it's through the Peter succession comes their popes, right? But it's John. So they kind of equivocate on the most important apostle there. But second, Jesus' concern was really because of the culture of the day, women, a lot of the labor was physical, and so Jesus' mother, being a woman and being probably a little bit old at this point, wouldn't have been able to provide for herself. So Jesus is actually demonstrating great love for his mother 
by giving her into the hands of the Apostle John. By the way, that's the, the clue that that's John because it's the one the, whom, whom Jesus loved. Yeah, that's a phrase that you see throughout John, referring to John. That's how he refers to himself. But it's, it's Jesus' way of making sure that his mother is going to be taken care of by this apostle. And by implication, I think there's others there that are going to help. But he's making sure that she's going to be taken care of in a culture in which widows who didn't have any male authority over them would often become desolate and poor. And so that's the reading of, I think, the proper reading of John. Clearly, the disciple is John, it's not Peter. Clearly, Jesus is not saying that she's going to be the mother of the church. There's no declaration like that. So, yeah, that passage does not say what the Roman Catholics wanted to say. And by the way, we'll come to other passages where they try to claim um, apostolic succession from Peter. We'll also help refute that. But to me, two points on that one. Number one, Jesus just demonstrating great love and care for his mother. But second, if the Roman Catholics were correct that she's now the mother of the church, Peter certainly would have been involved if their theology were correct. Well, it's John. So they've got a lot of misreading into that one passage. So, amen. Well, with that, I guess we're out of time. But let's, oh, I'm sorry, Peter, you got one more thing? Just a quick question. Where, where would the other brothers and sisters would have been? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know. The, I don't know if the text tells us. Um, there, I'd have to maybe research it, but I'm not sure if the text tells us where they were. But um, I know this, is that Jesus demonstrated great love, making sure she was going to be taken care of. And uh, that's the big thing to I take, take from that. So, yeah, good question. But, well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. I thank you for this congregation, the love of your word that they have. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, for our friends and relatives who are Roman Catholics, we pray, Lord, you'd give us opportunity to witness to them so that they may hear the truth of the scriptures and be converted, that they would come to know the uniqueness of Jesus Christ's power, authority, and his love, and that he alone is the narrow path to salvation. I do pray that you'd give us opportunities and give us your wisdom, regenerate their hearts before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.